I think when you're doing things that are passion-driven, it's easier. It doesn't feel like a grind. And so did you like being a wolf of Wall Street? I have to say I loved it. It really suited me. And then it's exciting. I mean, I got to work in the hedge fund industry really in its heyday. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital podcast. Today's guest is an extremely special guest, our very own Eva Yazari. Welcome, Eva, to the show. Thank you. Woo! All right, Eva is the founder and CEO of the Beyond Capital Fund, an impact investment fund focused on early stage companies in India and East Africa that primarily benefit people living below the poverty line. She's an investor with 15 years of experience investing in social impact in emerging markets and public markets. She's also the founder of The Conscious Investor, an online magazine that sheds light on the world of impact investing. She, of course, is the co-host of the Beyond Capital podcast. And before that, she was the vice president at Entrust Capital, a Wall Street hedge fund of funds. Eva specialized in due diligence, underlying fund portfolio analysis, and eating other people's lunches. <laughs> Welcome, Eva. It is an absolute pleasure to be interviewed by you, Ed Stevens. It's a pleasure to have you on your own show. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. So um, this is going to be a little bit different of a format. I, I do have some prepared questions, which are uh, wonderful, and I thank you for um, bringing your own questions to the interview, but I'm going to ask some of my own. The first one is, we know that you grew up in New York City. Yeah. Some of us do. And your parents, at least one of your parents is an artist. Yes. One or both? Both. Both. What kind of artists? Mom is a painter and my dad is a sculptor. Okay. So what's it like having artists as parents? It, looking back, it, it was incredible for me and my development as a child but it was very non-traditional at the time, especially vis-a-vis my peers. And I grew up in being brought around in Soho, Chelsea, parts of New York City, Brooklyn, where there were a bunch of galleries and often walking back and forth these big Soho lofts uh, when my parents were viewing um, art exhibitions and asking, are there any other children here? Um, so when I was a kid, it was, it was a little tough. I was expected to kind of be an adult, but um, I think that served me quite well. And now I'm, I'm an art lover and it's a big part of my life. And I think that my parents, whether intentionally or unintentionally, trained my eye. So it was, it was amazing. And I also got to have my birthday parties in the art studio. So oh, that that's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Um, but what we all want to know is, did they force you to be creative? No. Uh, my parents were very good at not forcing me to be anything and letting me be who I really was. Uh, and so, okay. yeah, they didn't force me at all. But creativity was all around me. So, like, when they produced a new work, did you have to say you liked it? 
No. You could say, oh, this is gross. Yeah. And, you know, as working artists, it wasn't like a big reveal in the household. So um, they were kind of creating work all the time, having exhibitions. And they probably asked my opinion, but it wasn't something that they were seeking out. They they really are artists because it comes from a deep place in them and they have a lot of confidence in their work. And so I could tell that up front that almost, you know, not that my opinion didn't matter, but they were doing it for a deeper purpose. Right. Okay. And so then at some point you slipped off to college and you went to an all-girls college. I did. Is that right? Yes. I, I also went to nine years of all-girls school from kindergarten to eighth grade. Okay. I went to an all-boys high school personally. Um, but my college was co-ed. Would you do it again? I would. Yeah. yeah. I okay. love the, I mean, I went to an all girls Catholic school run by a very strict nun who I kind of see in myself as a parent from time to time. Uh, and I see that as a good thing, actually. She was very, she was very strict, but nurturing. And that balance I think is it's difficult to strike as a parent, but I would do it again. Uh, especially in college, I think that the environment that was created for for the females that I went to school with was really unprecedented. Okay. So moving on, you graduated from college, or at least yeah. you left college. I graduated. I graduated. You did. Okay. <laughs> of course. All right. So you got your degree officially <laughs> from college, and you went into, was it investment banking or I, hedge fund? Well, I I started when I was a sophomore in college in, in, in the night investment banking program at Maryland. She literally went there after school. And then depending oh. on what group you got assigned to, you either got lucky and you got to leave at midnight or you, you weren't lucky and you had to leave at 4 a.m. And so I started, I did an internship for two years in investment banking and then I got sick of it and I said, hey guys, I'm going to go intern at a hedge fund, which ended up turning into my full-time job. And it was actually a hedge fund of funds. So we okay, invested right. in other hedge funds. Okay. And so mm-hmm. did you like being a wolf of Wall Street? I have to say I loved it. It really suited me. Really? Yeah, I really did. Um, what did you like about it so much? Well, I'm extremely analytical uh, as a person. Uh, and so that just kind of skill match was was good. But I also, I'm a deal person and I really enjoy the deal process and the investment process. Um, so I kind of like the nuts and the bolts of the work. And then it's exciting. I mean, I got to work in the hedge fund industry really in its heyday. Bill Ackman and Carl Icahn and Nelson Peltz. And I got to be the liaison with the activist manager. So I got the most exciting part of the portfolio and everybody was, I think, quite jealous. But they were all buying stakes in companies and, quote, rattling for change. And um, it was really fascinating to watch those stories unfold um, because sometimes they were even in the press and things would change day to day. Um, So there was just a lot of, a lot of, a lot to really be focused on and a lot of adrenaline. I've been trying not to use that word, but I think the, the, the excitement was something that I enjoyed about it. Did you have a mentor? No. And that was one of the reasons that I left. Diverting off of your illustrious career. Um, when did you meet who man? This is your husband. Yes. So I met my husband in 2008 um, right during the crash. Right during the crash. Yes, exactly. It was probably before Lehman went bankrupt. I think uh, it was in it was in July. Uh, that time is kind of a blur, but I'll never forget the moment Lehman went bankrupt on the Bloomberg terminal. But getting back to Who Man, we met on a blind date 
in New York. Really? Set up by some very good friends. A college friend of mine, very good family friends. We're still really, really close, all of us. They set us up on a blind date. Okay. So did you know that Robin and I met on a blind date? No. We did. We did. So there's something we have in common. Yes. Um, yeah. Who Man's a really cool guy. But what did you think of him when you first met him on this blind date? What was your first impression of Who Man? He was really, really, he was really just a great human being. And we sat down for seven hours and it was, I think it was a full seven hour full date and we like closed down the restaurant and we just had a lot to talk about and we were very values aligned. Um, We still are to this day. Um, And so he was just a, a great person and he was he was sweet he's he has he's european in in that he's british and he was a little bit more british than you you knew him to be at that time so there was kind of this very sweet formality to him that i also really liked on on that date right all right so you have two kids yes um i can vouch for the audience that these are super adorable kids (laughs) a boy and a girl and you're also on the go I'm yeah. not even sure I know anybody who's on the go more than you. <laughs> um, so your day job running Beyond Capital Fund, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to dig into that in a few questions here. But um, just having a full-time job, doing this conscious investor newsletter, uh, sorry, is it a... Yeah, my online magazine. Yeah, magazine. Weekly, magazine. Weekly, weekly newsletter, yes. Yeah, weekly newsletter. You're doing this podcast. You've got these two kids. Um, you're juggling a lot. Yeah. So tell the audience, <laughs> how do you do it? I think the key t- for me to juggle all of the things that you just mentioned, including like myself and my relationship with Who Man, which are both, I think my self-care is very strong and my relationship with Who Man is very strong. But the key really is balancing and finding ways to delegate to be honest. And it doesn't mean that I'm outsourcing my family or I'm outsourcing critical parts of my work. But um, I think one of my strengths is that I'm relatively good at knowing how to leverage myself. And um, that has led me to be able to have a lot of components to my life. And I don't actually feel like I'm not present. For example, uh, two hours ago, I was in a music class with my daughter. Um, so I'm I'm around, and um, you know I have dinner. What with kind my of music kids. were they playing? She's pretty young. Yeah, Isn't she like it was one. It was she's eleven months. It was one of these <laughs> mommy and me classes where okay. is that uh, music in quotation marks? Y- no, you'd be surprised. We sing songs, and then <sighs> you'd be surprised. She's learning how to like you know hit two sticks together to make noise and things like that. Um, so I, I'm very present, and it and it'll. I just think leveraging myself uh, in terms of having an executive assistant, um, having a great uh, associate at Beyond Capital that helps out in all areas, including this podcast. So you know, props to Mathilde, who's behind the scenes here. She's the best. Yeah, she's, she's incredible. And, um, and also having a husband who is a 50-50 partner with me, a really, truly 50-50 partner um, in, in all areas and, and supporting me and we support each other as much as we can and knowing that we want to do all the things that we're doing. And lastly, I think when you're doing things that are passion driven, uh, it's easier. It doesn't feel like a grind. 
you know, my work is really fueled by my interest and my passion for social impact and speaking to a wider audience about impact investing. And that doesn't feel like work to me. So as long as I'm not, you know, running around disorganized, everything feels good. How many hours of sleep per night do you get? I want you to guess. How many? I want you to guess. Oh, guess? <laughs> I would guess seven. I aim for eight and a half, and I often get that. Really? Yes. All right. Yeah. yeah, sleep is just my own personal issue. I think sleep is like one of the most important yes. aspects to my personal performance. 100%. I'd rather shorten the rest of my day and get the sleep I need. Yeah. So. I agree. That's tough to do sometimes, though. It is. And everything is ebb and flow. Do you get jet lagged, all this international travel? I do get jet lagged. Um, I take melatonin. That stuff uh, doesn't work. Actually, it, it does work for me. I think some of it is uh, that's psychosomatic. Light, that's, the that's the lightweight. Psychosomatic. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It's like putting one of those eye things on your head, you know, one of those eye covers. I wear that every night. You do? Yes. <laughs> do you have a fancy one? It's it's made out of silk, yes. <laughs> Only one. I actually have four or five yeah. in the next to my bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. So let's switch to investing. Yes. All right. So let's. Beyond Capital. Great name. Thank you. What kinds of deals do you do at Beyond Capital? So it's an investing fund, but maybe you can tell us a little yeah. bit about what Beyond Capital sort of does in terms of its deals, and and then maybe we'll ask a little bit about why you started it. Sure. So what we do is we invest in seed stage companies in India and East Africa that are providing access to basic goods and services like healthcare, like access to renewable energy, sanitation, things like that. Um, to people who are living on typically less than $4 a day. Um, so you could look at us like a venture capital fund. And we actually, for the past 10 years, have been set up as a nonprofit. So we have a evergreen pool of capital that when we invest and get a profit back, we recycle it back into the next young company that is growing and scaling not only its financial performance, but its, its social and or environmental performance. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about the nonprofit aspect. You don't actually do a redistribution back. Currently, yes. Okay. Mm. You may change that. Correct. All right. Well, not necessarily change, but add on a fund. Supplement. Correct. Okay, so seed stage, emerging market, Indian, East Africa. Yeah. Um, a tough place to invest, right? I mean, Well. no? I mean. E easy? I, I wouldn't say it's easy, uh, but we invested in these markets because we believe very strongly that there's an opportunity to invest in people who don't have access uh, to the basic things that we have here. And so we know there are roughly 4 billion people um, living at this bottom of the global economic pyramid, and they have a budget to spend on a small budget, but they have a budget to spend on healthcare, agriculture tools, or other products and services that'll, that will improve their lives. And so we saw it as an opportunity, and then we overlaid areas where there was financial sector growth, mobile prevalence, prevalence of English as well, and a basis on the British legal system, so that there was kind of understanding. My husband's a British lawyer. Um, and then that created call, an do opportunity. Do they even call them lawyers? He's a solicitor. Oh, a solicitor. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's, I think the other one's a barrister. Um, yeah. But uh, we, we, we really see it as an opportunity. But yes, you're right. I mean, it's not... It's not easy, uh, I think, particularly for the companies, and they are often lacking infrastructure, access to their own services to, to do business, and um, there are some roadblocks, but we set up as a nonprofit so that we could take more risk and uh, not have a, necessarily a trade-off of, you know, do we have to return back to our LPs? And this is 10 years ago when the field was quite quite new. And now I think we're really at a place where there is no trade-off, which is great. And then that's where phase two of Beyond Capital will come in. Okay. We'll get to that. So um, what would you think of as the most representative deal of the last three years, maybe? That's not necessarily going back 10. What's an example of a deal that you've done? Well, one one like top to tail deal that we did um, is called ERC Eye Care, and it's a company that was started by uh, an ophthalmologist based in northern India in a state called uh, Assam, which is close to the Himalayas, so relatively remote. And he observed that his community lacked basic diagnosis of, you know, eye correction and glasses and also cataracts and cataract surgeries. And he started a business around this. And we found him through our networks, probably an accelerator. We typically have relationships with business plan uh, programs and accelerators and other investors. So he came to us through our network and we decided to put a, this is a while ago of like a $15,000 investment into his company and maybe $15,000, $16,000 because he, it was so young and we felt that there was a lot of risk in the model um, simply because he was really serving a population that was completely um, unserved and unaware of his services. And so um, the business grew and scaled and we invested in 2013 and we exited in 2017 at a 27% IRR, which means we roughly doubled our money uh, while improving access to eye care services for 150,000 people. Um, So that's kind of like a keystone example of our work. Um, Simple problem to a complex um, solution, which is just like, how how do you get the eye care services to people in rural areas? Well, give me some context here because Mm -hmm. I, I... I'm just at an abstract level. I can imagine fifteen thousand dollars going a long way. Yeah. For this entrepreneur. On the other hand, at a concrete level, it's really hard for me to get my head around. What does an entrepreneur in northern India do with fifteen thousand bucks? Yeah. Like, what was the? If you can remember, what yeah. what was the uses of capital for that fifteen grand? Like, how far did it go? Yeah, so the 15 grand mostly went to building out a network of what he actually called EVAs. Um, I believe it was vision assistance. I can't remember what E stood for. Um, and so the, the, these women were a network and tentacles to get into deeper and more rural areas to increase the customer base. Um, so it was the training of the EVAs and then equipping that, equipping them with the resources that they needed to set up small clinics in rural areas, which would all feed into 
the hub. So it was a hub and spoke model. And the hub is where he would do the most profitable surgeries, which were the cataract surgeries um, for the business model. So it was really to build out that network. And then um, I believe that it was a larger round. I think the company raised about $120,000 at the time. Okay. Um, and so we were our participant in that round. We kind of, They needed to fill a gap and we came in and did that um, in the capital. And so that money also went to building one of the hospitals. So that was their first hospital. And by the time we had exited, they had two hospitals and were on the road to building the third. This The other thing I would say just to provide context is the company went on to raise additional capital. And that is something that whilst that was one of our smallest investments, so our average is currently $50,000, $100,000 currently right now, but $15,000 can actually catalyze a lot more. And we know in our portfolio that our investments have catalyzed 54 times the amount of money we originally invested in, in all of our portfolio companies. And so there's also a vote of confidence that you're giving a company um, when you give it even a small amount of money. Yeah. <clears throat> so do you do any promotion of, of these companies or you just kind of let them handle that themselves? It depends. Um, if every company needs a different skill set or way of, of kind of having, having support. Um, sometimes for us and inherent in our name is that we do provide more than money. Sometimes we're providing pro bono legal support. Sometimes we're providing financial modeling assistance, um, but we do help promote. So Ajeta, who was on our episode on January 7th, uh, she and I have done, uh, kind of awareness brand building roadshows in, in Europe and in the U S where we help, uh, extend our network out to her and invite them to a lunch or a breakfast and help them understand who she is. And, um, and so we do help them out to the extent possible. And then through our social media channels, we are also quite active in promoting our companies. And lastly, we do, uh, we do share our very high quality video and, and, um, video and then the the photos that we capture when we do site visits with the companies and they really appreciate that because they typically don't have a budget for that sort of thing. Oh, it's like their B-roll. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. So um, I think we have the picture there. How many deals do you do a year? Well, you know, our goal has always been to make four investments a year, at least for the past three years. That's been a hard number for us to reach. Um, and so we have... We're Why? Closing... Just can't well, find the quality? Yeah. I mean, we're we're quite careful about where we invest um, because we want to have a portfolio of winners. Um, don't tell us your secrets, but tell us your secrets. Well, my our secret is we don't believe that the traditional venture model necessarily works for social impact because if you're spray and praying and you're betting on the loss of social impact from day one and knowing that you're, you're, you're going to have, you know, 10% plus failures in your portfolio, like total losses in your portfolio, we think it doesn't do a service to impact. So we'd rather invest in companies across the board that we think can return two to three X, which is our expected return. And so that's why we're so careful with where we put our money. Um, but the second factor in our deal flow and is that we is manpower, women power. Um, it's really um, the human capital side. And we have always had one investment associate. And I think with two, we would be able to kind of step things up. And that's why we'll talk about beyond capital phase two, but that's why we're kind of moving in a slightly different direction. So we have 
we're closing our 12th deal. Uh, and then we have investment committee approval uh, for our 13th deal already. And then we have another investment committee call coming up. So we'll, we'll okay. hopefully hit on our 14th deal by the end of February, mid-March. Hot deals. Hot deals, yes. Okay. So I would say, just to back up a little bit, unpacking this idea, which you floated, that the spray and pray model doesn't necessarily work as well for impact investing as some might think. Mm -hmm. And just to give the audience some perspective for this, a typical venture capitalist will make 10 investments and out of those 10, they might expect a couple of them to, to get really big and they might expect to lose all their money with a couple more of them. And then the ones in the middle, they just kind of hope to get their money back out of. Yeah. That's a simplification. But and some people call that spray and pray because really they're counting on one or two investments to return almost all of their money and definitely to return all their profits. So what is it about when you say it does a disservice to impact investing, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that it it actually has a harmful effect on the populations it's meant to help? Or do you think it just hurts the reputation of impact investing in some way that is different? Well, number one, we at Beyond Capital, we want to invest in the most legitimate and viable companies. So why would we invest in, in a company that we didn't think had the greatest promise of social impact in its sector. And I think it really comes down to a mindset uh, of, frankly, lack or abundance. And um, not to say that venture capitalists all have a lack mindset, but there is a pressure to allocate. And when there's a pressure to allocate funding, they, you know, they may put money into things that they're not 100% convinced of because putting money to work is also an important part of being an investor. Um, with yeah. the, with, with, a little bit less time pressure, although we've always allocated the donations that our donors have given us um, to invest uh, quite quickly, um, because we, you know, we we have we still have good opportunities, and we can always invest more. But with with the kind of more proactive approach of finding the most the best companies within our sector and geographic scopes, I think that we're really you know helping be more positive and more proactive about our investing. But I also agree, like the second point, I also agree that uh, companies that are backed and perhaps don't have the unit economics adding up or don't have the right valuation um, or maybe have an inflated valuation and the next round ends up being a down round, if we've seen all of this stuff, they can actually hurt the industry as a whole because they can create businesses like Mobisol, um, which is an energy access company that was propped up by a lot of investment capital in Africa and ultimately went bankrupt because uh, it didn't have a sound business model. And so I see that as a fundamental risk to impact investing as well. And um, looking a little bit larger scale at the sector, I think it's important to be really scrupulous about where we put our capital. All right. Thank you for that. So something that stands out about your approach to me is, is that you really have this mission to spread the word about impact investing mm-hmm. more than, and really it's kind of counter to your own interests, wow. right? Because if more people get into this and look for high quality deals, that'll be less good deals for you. 
in the fixed pie scenario. Mm-hmm. But also, really, most investors are pretty protective of, of their space. They want to be the only people investing in it, if possible. Of course, there is a benefit to being public because you're going to get better deal flow. More investors will, you know, more, more entrepreneurs will find you mm-hmm. and say, oh, here's a thought leader. Here's somebody who's got a great Rolodex. But I'm just wondering, why is that part of your mission? First, I don't think that speaking more widely about our work hurts us in any way from, a be- from an investment perspective. Um, I have 10 years of being an investor in the areas that, I, that we invest, and I can tell you that I don't think people are crowding into early-stage companies in developing countries anytime soon. Um, and if they did, it would, it would be fine. Because uh, as you say, kind of our reputation would help carry, carry us in leading deals and then others would follow. There's still not enough money for the types of deals that we're doing out there. Um, but, but my personal mission of speaking more widely about impact investing really comes back to my observation that over the past 10 years of being an impact investor and putting myself and Human out there and you know, spending a percentage of our our income on the expenses of Beyond Capital and, um, and you know, many other ways contributing ourselves to Beyond Capital, I have observed that there is a fundamental disconnect between the people that we interact with uh, in our social circles and the people that we interact with in the impact investment world. The two are completely segregated. And there's something wrong with that because the people that we interact with, they all have at minimum a 401k or at minimum, a small savings, um, and at maximum, a tremendous portfolio. And I, I think that it just, it really dawned on me in 2018 when I did my first feature in Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle brand company, um, that there is not a conversation around how to make your money more consistent with your values for people who are not willing to either invest their whole portfolio or set up their own foundation or spend their whole career devoting themselves to learning about opportunities. And so I saw it as an opportunity, like more entrepreneurially, um, but it also became a part of our mission at Beyond Capital because it also helped us attract supporters and interest and 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 communicate about our work more creatively. And the creative side of things for me over the past three years have become a lot more um, important to me uh, as, as a CEO and how we communicate and who we're inspiring. But I really see it as something that needs to be fixed in the system. Um, and weirdly, uh, nobody's doing it right now. <laughs> we're telling the story. Yeah. So let's shift uh, a little bit towards this phase two. So you've, you've yeah. been talking about your nonprofit, Beyond Capital. You have your recycling. You take donations, mm-hmm. and you know if you measured your IRR, it would be, you know, really good in the high twenties. I think yeah. I've heard you say. Mm-hmm. So the the next phase for Beyond Capital is what. The next phase is that this year we're raising a $20 million fund. Um, and so we're taking our track record to the next level. And um, that will enable us to invest in between 18 and 21 companies in their seed stages, but also 
doing Series A for a portion of those businesses in the portfolio as well. Nothing about our investment mandate will change beyond capital nonprofit as well as the ambassador program and other ways that we engage donors will still remain the same. Beyond Capital Nonprofit will likely be a co-investor uh, alongside the, the larger fund as well. Um, but we just feel that there's no better time with uh, impact in the zeitgeist and uh, greater awareness of uh, social good to go out and raise a for-profit fund. And two other points on this, I've, I've observed there are some people who are not interested in donating. And that's okay. And in my own right. exploration of becoming an impact investor in my personal portfolio, I've realized that there's also not enough deep impact opportunities for investors. It's ESG or, you know, some sort of fund that requires a lot of due diligence on the team and their backgrounds, but there's really nothing in between. And whilst this is a fund opportunity, we're coming with a track record. I think that's unique. And so we're providing this opportunity to have it's a, it's a long time horizon, but to return back roughly two times uh, capital over a 10-year time horizon while having a tremendous social impact. Because we know that every dollar we invest currently improves 12 lives. And so taking that to scale is really exciting for us. That's really awesome. And are you doing that as a solo deal or are you getting some new people involved or it's the same team or... Well, what's the, what's the plan? We have, uh, it's the same leadership team. And then we will hire two new investment associates. Our, our amazing investment associate is planning to go back to business school. So what? yeah, it happens. Wow. <laughs> it's not the first time either. Um, but we're, we've had great people work for us. So, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not worried about finding, um, two new investment associates to help out, with this fund. Um, and so roughly, you know, the team will be, the core team will be the same with, with new investment associates attached. Maybe you'll get some good applications from this interview. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not there yet. I'm just, I'm just but, putting the deck together, but yeah, it's a, it's good promotion and it's a good way for me to uh, describe what we're doing more publicly. Dear Eva, I was listening to your interview on the Beyond Capital podcast and I thought that I would write you today to put my name forth as a potential analyst for the new Beyond Capital $20 million fund. <laughs> exactly. Woo. All right, cool. So The Conscious Investor yeah. is an online magazine. Mm -hmm. What is it? Why are you doing it? What's the plan for it? So the mission of The Conscious Investor is to shed light on impact investing. And similarly to what I said previously about speaking to a wider audience, that's, that's really what it is trying to solve for, um, is bridging the gap of, you know, kind of the insiders and, quote, the outsiders of impact investing. The content is all, all kind of coming from a different angle. My editorial director co-founded it with me, is uh, an editor at Goop. Um, so she kind of has a, a different lens from which she views impact investing. And I think that's very beneficial for the audience. Um, so we have pieces on, you know, impact investing at any means to all the way through the moral imperative for impact investing, um, all the way, you know, and other ones are interviews, Q&As with experts or impact investors or company CEOs as well, um, purpose-driven company CEOs. Um, and so where we're 
go where I'm going with this is really to create a, a platform and in many ways and it's this is a a side hustle entrepreneurial idea, but to create a lifestyle brand around impact investing um, and purpose around one's money. I'm also writing a book around that same topic, which will um, launch July, uh, S- September 2020. And your first product line will be an impact investing themed line of night eye covers. <laughs> Yeah, that could be some good swag, but maybe not in silk. <laughs> no charge for that idea. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so let's say that I am a enlightened individual. I got your Conscious Investor newsletter magazine. I got the Beyond Capital podcast and listened to it, and I started to get fired up. What do I? Where do I start? Most people, I think, who have fairly significant portfolios would know they can become a limited partner in a fund. Yeah. And, you know, but those are going to have minimums. A $20 million fund is going to have minimums that may be out of reach of some people. Yeah, totally. So what would I, what would I do if I just had like a thousand bucks, you know, in my bank account that I thought, Hey, you know, a thousand dollars a year, I'm going to, mm-hmm. I don't want to donate it. I want to do impact investing. Cause that's so much more, it's like, hey, I can get the benefit. I'm not that rich anyway. I shouldn't be donating any money, mm-hmm. right? So, I should. But if I'm investing it and I get it back plus a little profit, that's like a win-win. So I think a lot of people will want to do that. It's a win-win-win, and yeah, it's a way that you can engage your kids around money. It's a way that you can the social stigmas I think break down around money because, as you say, you know, people think people with $1,000 to invest a year, I don't know if you said year or month, but they, they think that investing is not for them. When when you start thinking about what more your money can do, I think it opens up the conversation about what so investing can do. So what do I do? do. So, so I've got 1000 bucks. So take a step back and define your values first. That's what you do. So so you want to be clear on what you want to invest in. Is it an envir- phone fund focused on the environment? Is it a fund focused on women on boards? Um, there are a bunch of other examples. Um, is it a specific niche around, um, you know, products made for people with disabilities? There are enough uh, funds that are screened out for certain criteria or, or almost proactively investing in companies that meet specific social and or environmental criteria out there that you can have a choice. And so defining your values is the first step in that. Um, and then getting involved. Um, there are a lot of platforms. So two examples, I have small allocations similar to what you're talking about going automatically every single month from Elvest, which is Sally Krawcheck, uh, Wall Street veterans, um, new company focused on female investing. Um, so I have one allocation going in there for one of her funds, mutual funds, which has an impact investing lens focused on gender and, um, being kind of more focused on, as I said, kind of women on boards and also companies that are um, more favorable to women. And then I also have an environmental direct debit uh, with a company called Aspiration. And um, these are not in any way like endorsements of these products, but rather examples of the many different options that are out there that go through either robo-advisors or Charles Schwab. Um, I think Charles Schwab actually does a really good job on their sustainable 
investing homepage of explaining even what greenwashing is and how they're trying to move get you know screen for greenwashing and pinkwashing and bluewashing and 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 all of these um, perhaps fake impact strategies. Uh, and so there are a lot of options out there, but I do think taking a step back and knowing what you want to invest in first is really key. Okay. This has been a super interesting interview and we're coming up to the end, sadly. Sad for me too. Is there anything that I didn't ask you today that you feel compelled to tell the world? I think we covered the basics on me. I think perhaps what we didn't cover is my personal motivations for doing this. And and it's important for me to show up with more than money. I think one of the things about working on Wall Street was that I really learned how to lead with money all the time and why I'm so passionate about impact investing and knowing what it can do for more than your usual suspects is because I know the power that it has uh, to improve one's life. And for me, it's been a really big tool to help me to step away from walking into a room and, and leading with money. And so that's, I think, really a key message uh, for me to be a little bit vulnerable and share. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that and all these other interesting tidbits about you and your past. Um, we, didn't tell, we didn't really get into the good stuff, so we'll have to save that for our <laughs> second interview. But um, no, I'm joking. just want to tell you how much I enjoy doing this podcast with you. I think it's been one of the great pleasures for me. That's something I've always wanted to be involved in. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to be involved. And um, with that, um, we can say uh, goodbye and good luck. Thank you. Thank you. It It was really great to hear all your incredible questions. This was a lot of fun. So you've just heard the Beyond Capital podcast with a very special guest, Eva Yazari. The CEO of Beyond Capital, the big wig in the house. Thank you for making me feel so special. And if you like this episode, please rate and review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. That's right. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And you can follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.